Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Martin James, the author of State of Bass, The Origins of Jungle Drum and Bass. So Martin, thanks for being here with me today. That's fine. It's a pleasure. This is a revision of a book you wrote uh, a while ago. And so I'm wondering if you could start to talk about how you got interested in jungle drum and bass and why this book and this sort of revision right now. Okay, so I first got interested in uh, the whole jungle scene back when it first first emerged, actually. Um, I was a musician, a DJ and a journalist. Um, and around about the time the jungle was picking up or really emerging, I'd started writing for the national press and I found myself in a quite a, a unique position to be uh, experiencing the, the emergence of something firsthand, um, both as a critic, but also as, as a punter. <laughs> so I, I kind of felt being immersed in the middle of this, that it really needed to be documented. and. Um, you know, you, you know the feeling when you, you go out and you hear something fresh and new and you, you want it makes you want to be creative or makes you want to write about it or, or, or some, somehow respond. Um, and by this stage, as I was mainly working as a writer, um, it was natural. I started, started writing uh, about Jungle and uh, then, then Drum and Bass. Um, and luckily, I, I met a, a publisher who was surprisingly interested i say surprising because it was really early on so can you talk a little let's talk about um how you sort of define jungle and drum and bass just to sort of set this up it's something you discussed throughout the book and the beginning of the book but how would you define what jungle is or the origins of jungle and drum and bass okay so this is uh, it's actually quite complex um one of the, the, the dominant stories is that jungle um, is a, it's a black music from the you know, African diasporic music that comes from the sound system culture of Jamaica. Um, what happens is it, when, when our first wave Jamaicans arrive in, in Britain, um, they bring with them the sound system culture, but also soak up British culture. Um, so you start developing a, a British black music aesthetic. Um, and Jungle was one of the first, I'd say, really strong British forms of black music. Um, it drew on a, a range of different types of music, uh, including like hip hop. It took the breaks approach of hip hop, but sped those breaks up. Uh, it took from electro. It took, took from... Um, God, there's this whole range of stuff. You know, you can't you can't avoid people like Kraftwerk. You can't avoid the the um, techno scene. A lot of the early jungle artists were trying to make techno. Um, 
So it, it really is that, that this hybrid form of music. Now, the, the difference between dr- jungle and drum and bass is kind of, we get into semantics. I think the very simplistic version of it is that jungle is more of a black music in that it really draws on reggae very heavily. You've got a, a half-speed bass, bass line going along. Um, and drum and bass loses the bass line. But I think it's very simplistic to then say drum and bass is therefore white. In fact, um, it's a very complex, and although they're both black music forms, um, they're simultaneously black, black and white um, in terms of um, who's creating the music. Right. And so this music sort of started, as often music does, in the underground and a party scene. So what was sort of happening at that time? Can you talk a little bit about that sort of party scene, where this originated and where it really came from it, in creating a subculture? So um, at, the end, at the end of the 1980s, uh, you start seeing an economic decline and a response to that. Um, whereby people are embracing forms of music and uh, a party aesthetic that goes along with it. One of the interesting things in this early early stage of the free party was it was very punk in its approach, very DIY. Um, so it'd be literally you'd go and scope out a building or a warehouse or a field, um, check that it's okay, move the sound system in and have a party. The... Um, Parties were publicised with with flyers. Flyers would have a number that you could call, which was a voice bank. You phone the voice bank, it tells you another number to call. And it was what happened, you'd move from place to place until eventually you find, you're find you given the actual destination. So it was an illegal thing that, that was almost like cat and mouse with the police. Um, but it was, like I said, very punk and very um, DIY in its aesthetic. The positive side of that, incredibly creative. The negative side of the side of that was, well, there's no health and safety. <laughs> um, nobody's counting you in or counting you out. And 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 it actually got very nasty when the police started clamping down on it. Um, I witnessed uh, what I talk about in the in the book, but so uh, there's one time when um, the police literally um, smashed up a party. I can't think of a better way of putting it. Maybe 500 people dancing in in a in a warehouse. Um, and they just came in, and 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 um, it was quite brutal, put it that way. So you've got this kind of us and them stuff thing starting to emerge. That the, the authorities are very anti the rave movement, as it's become known, whereas the rave scene are very politicised, highly aesthetically politicised, as as well as politically active. And um, the government, the UK government have a series of, of legislations against the free party scene. Eventually, the, the, the final one, the Criminal Justice Act, closes down all free parties, effectively making it illegal to dance publicly to repetitive beats or to um, travel in a, in a convoy of more than four cars, as I remember. Which is kind of ironic because all music has repetitive beats and um, there's Many, many a, a different kind of convoy involves more, more than one, more than four cars. So it was, it was a really strange thing. Um, but effectively, it drove clubs underground. Um, you were given the choice as a, as a rave promoter to either um, get go the legal route and have a really quiet sound system and 
and have a, a lot of the things we took for granted with the dance scene <laughs> eradicated from it, or it went into uh, kind of like back rooms and, and darker clubs that were off the beaten track. And the great thing about Jungle, the really important thing about Jungle, is it emerged in those spaces in London that weren't on the beaten track. They, they weren't a part of, this, of the underground map. So there's almost like a two two maps of London. There's there's the the, the, the underground map. But there's also a subcultural map, which is it never matches up. It rarely matches up with the underground map. Um. So 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 the, the, the jungle scenes emerging in parts of London that you can't get to easily with the underground or often even the bus service. Um, which created a, an, an incredible playground for people to still still. Um, enjoy their their cultural activities, <laughs> uh, but out out of the way of 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 the uh, the, the glare of the police. Um, that they were they were legal, but they were in darkened spaces. So so you see uh, lots of um, clubs that people had ignored before had become really unpopular, suddenly being taken over, and they turned into these amazing hotbeds of talent uh, spaces where you'd go in on a, on a on a Friday or a Saturday when early doors when it opened and you'd still be dancing there early doors the next day and the floor the, the ceilings were literally dripping with sweat I mean AWOL is the classic example of that with ceilings dripping with sweat everybody in there dripping with sweat all the key people all the all the main DJs everybody's in it together so an incredible incredible environment and I think kind of once in a lifetime in some ways because I, I, I haven't actually witnessed any other scene in any other genre of music that quite had that kind of energy. You mentioned um, AWOL, uh, which stands for a way of life. And, and that's a really important club and sort of space. So let's talk a little bit about that. Can you talk about AWOL and what it was and what it sort of meant to this scene and subculture? So AWOL is really important as a space because you really see the transition between um, a form of pre-jungle sound called dark or dark core. And you see that transition from dark core into jungle. I'm not really keen on this idea of, of uh, a straight line of, of one music giving way to another form of music. But you did see the popularity of one, one kind of music become overtaken by another kind. So both derived, derived from... Um, the hardcore scene. The hardcore scene was a form of, of rave music where it used a breakbeat that was sped up, very aggressive. The same scene, scene that the Prodigy came out of. Jungle sped, uh, then, then sorry, Dark sped up those beat breakbeats even more and then, and then started using a lot of dystopian ambience, a lot of minor keys, a lot of um, basically these producers, these. The kids in their bedroom starts are starting to sample their fi- their favourite fil- films, you know. So, so lots of horror films are, are suddenly uh, in this music, but it kind of felt. Whereas hardcore had a very positive vibe to it, dark didn't feel positive in the same way. It was quite um, heavy, and in the process, in 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 those first maybe twenty weeks of 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 AWOL. You see the transition from dark of Four Hero and those artists into the more of a, a junglist sound 
where um, the sound system culture starts to become much clearer. The um, the, the jungle, as I said, the, the reggae bass line becomes much more prominent. Um, it's not necessarily the first place to have played this music, but, it, but you can see it's a really interesting to have seen it in AWOL, that, that, that's, that journey from one to another. And by the end of AWOL, you, you really have got something that's, that's picking up on the, the, uh, the dancehall reggae sound. So you're almost seeing a journey within reggae going on as well <laughs> that, uh, that, that translates from an early, um, almost like a, a rock steady vibe that, that by the time the, of, by the time the, the last few days, last few months of AWOL, it's gone full journey to, to a full on dancehall reggae vibe and and a much heavier and then but really joyous you know it's 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 hard to kind of put your finger on it or just to say how um this music was ecstatic you know you you a tune that would drop and you just be it would be amazing you that horrible that amazing feeling your your hair standing on the back of your neck and you you uh, just want to jump um and it's something you know that you most people experience in that when they're teenagers. But I was a writer in my thirties, so <laughs> to to have the the unexpected pleasure of being a critic suddenly in the middle of the floor, jumping up and down to this incredible music, I defy anybody to listen to Jungle and not want to dance. And one of the another thing you talk about is that reggae jungle sort of taking control. Um, Armed and dangerous, it, it, you talk about, and the role of race. So, can you share a little bit about what you saw um, and what you write about with that? Okay. Well, one of the interesting things about the jungle raves, <clears throat> the, the jungle raves um, become typified as being um, spaces that are shut down to certain people. Um, so, white men became scared of going to jungle raves, which was crazy, which was absolutely insane. Um, funnily enough, I was talking to Brian G from V Records recently about this, and he said what it was was young black men in, in England, um, or young black men, uh, were walking with a swagger. and had the swagger, and the swagger scared white boys. <laughs> but white girls were still going so this, <laughs> to, to, these, to these raves. Um, it was a kind of a strange, it was a, very strange fear. It was a form of racism that that, that uh, ex- has existed in 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 Britain for a very long time and exists today. The fear of the white of the black man, certainly the black youth, the idea that all young black men are in are in in uh, gangs, and um, so this was kind of implanted right into the heart of our understanding of jungle. Now, when I talk about the jungle takeover or the or the the, the, uh, the Kind of the reggae takeover, really. What I'm saying is more of an aesthetic um, that it became more pronounced in its dancehall style, but at the same time, um, there was a perceived threat for a lot of people who 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 found the drum and bass scene to be to be less threatening. Now, I'm not going to say that I don't say that the drum and bass scene is any less of a black form of music. It draws very heavily on jazz. It draws heavily on funk and it draws heavily on soul. Um, but it was perceived to be less threatening for um, a white audience. 
Now, this was kind of introduces very bizarre and, and kind of complicated race ideas within within the scene because um, I the only space I experienced racial intolerance or saw it firsthand was in the media, in the way that the, the scenes were depicted. Now, when, on the one hand, you've got jungle that's being depicted as almost being stupid music, and the other hand, and, and threatening music. On the other hand, you've got drum and bass as being being um, perceived as being intelligent music. So it's kind of a, it's a split in music that reminded me of um, when Sergeant Pepper came out. And Sergeant Pepper was this concept album. The Beatles announced they're never going to play live again. Here's an album you've got to listen to on your headphones in the privacy of your bedroom and immerse yourself in the concept. The great rock concept is born. And it's the antithesis to the single. The single is a much more communal form of music, communal um, delivery form. And so dance music is the single. The dance, dance music is driven by the single. It's driven by community. It's driven by the dance floor. Pop music is driven in the same way. What happens in that process is 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 that um, the conceptual rock becomes prioritised over the disposable dance music. Um, that in, in itself, I think, is is an inherently racist um, a, a, a idea about music. Um, most black music is treated as being disposable. So. What we start seeing in the media is this, this prioritisation over certain types of artists. So, so Goldie is supported because he's seen to be a long-term album artist, yet, um, let's say, Shy FX doesn't get the same respect because he's being very much driven by, by singles. And you start seeing that very much in, in the, um, the media. And increasingly, the media uh, of the 90s was responding to this scene by depicting versions of themselves. Now, I was I was a, a, a journalist in the mainstream publications. I wrote for magazines all over the world. Um, and I honestly say, in all my years in Melody Maker and Music Magazine and uh, Mix Mag, DJ, Enemy, um, Select, all the key, key big magazines of the era, I probably saw about three, maybe four people of colour working in all that time. So really what was happening with the media is we were de re redefining that form of music as in, in our own image. So increasingly you start getting white artists being being prioritised over black artists. So that's just that's, that's one of the media forms that's going on. At the same time, you have very much more... Um, a pernicious racism going on in 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 the clubland, um, where you would in, in in the West End of London, the, the central clubs, they put a ban on breakbeat music. This is something that still happens in this country now, where councils ban certain kinds of music in inner city if there, if there's a perceived problematic audience. So. Um, and the idea of problematizing black music is always a, a key theme. So breakbeats are banned. Breakbeats are banned because that's the music of that's associated with rave, but more specifically, it's associated with jungle. Now, people weren't going to small clubs for rave, 
but they were going small spaces for jungle. And you had this crazy situation where you'd have the producers and the DJs of the scene standing outside in queues, not being allowed into these clubs when their own music was being played inside. So the, so basically there was a, there was a junglist ban. Now, to me, I see that the, the whole thing as being junglism and jungle and drum and bass are, are, are subgenres within that. But junglism is the way of life in the same way that we talk about grime now as a way of life. Um, so you really you having a whole subculture, a whole subsect of society, a whole group of people that were pri- primarily black being excluded from clubs, being excluded from the media. Um, and that, that lasted a very long time and still still goes on today. And one of the things that, as you're talking about that, one of the things you bring up in the book is this idea that it starts to become a business, right? That um, that they are influenced by the media, that they start thinking about this more as a business and there's this move to mainstream. So you talk about the committee. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of move from this underground space, one where they could sort of avoid this public pressure to one where they start to where where certain members at least start to sort of um, want to be a part of this mainstream culture. Okay, I mean the interesting thing about the the, the um, jungleism industry is it's it's a part of neoliberal <laughs> capitalism. You know, really, it's no different to punk's DIY movement in that way. Punk's it comes from the emerging neoliberal in, environment. And jungleism is, is, is post-Thatcher, you know. Um, so the idea that people were trying to build themselves, build their brand, build build careers is, is, is not unusual and actually um, it was very much of the era, very much it made sense. Um, what was interesting to me, and the committee and the committee's kind of sometimes people misread read this as being um, me thinking it's a bad thing. Actually, the committee was really interesting because what they were saying was a group of of primarily black artists and DJs, producers, and MCs saying we've lived through a rave scene uh, beforehand where people stole our music. You have producers who made number one had number one hit singles that becomes attributed to somebody else. You have an environment where the biggest rave act of the era had a third member who is a black man who never got got, uh, credited. So this was about people coming together and saying, we need to protect what's ours. We realise our own value. We realise our our own power. We need to control things. Now, the the downside of the controlling of things is you basically had a lot of men controlling things in their image. So it became a very uh, negative environment for women. So you don't see a huge amount of female DJs coming through. Um, Hardly any MCs. I think I can only think of one. You don't see many female producers. You see key people. So you've got Chemistry and Storm, very important in the development of metalheads and both incredible DJs and producers in their own right. DJ Rap, um, one of the highest selling uh, 
jungle artists of all time, but they were excluded from these meetings, from the committee. Um, and one of the decisions that the committee made was to clamp down on certain um, promoters. So first of all, they start saying to people, "You cannot. You, we will not support you if you don't. Uh, if you play, if you work for that promoter, and that promoter might be a female DJ's main source of income. So putting so this happened to DJ Rap. So basically, she's being told." In order to be supported by the scene or the committee, you have got to stop playing for that promoter who pay, who you make your main income from. Well, that creates an instant division. Um, so this, I mean, it becomes quite a negative environment for women, I think. And but at the same time, the media have got their part to play because because the media kind of ignored female um, DJs constantly um but going going back to the committee the committee tried to control everything so they tried to control who was able to write about them they tried to control who could take photographs they tried to control which promoters were the right promoters who were the right djs who were the right producers who were the right mcs which i kind of understand why um in terms of ethnicity and and not having black music stolen again but I think there was a there was a sexism at the, at the core of it. There was quite there was extremely negative. Ironically, I think now um, the what the committee were trying to do back then, grime fully understands, and the grime scene really has emerged with that that ideology that the committee was trying to push in terms of control, um, but not quite as much sexist control. One of the things that in your answer you brought up, and I wanted to ask you about it anyway, is uh, Metalhead. So you talk about a number of different labels, but one of the labels that you focus on and talk about is Metalheads and also the Sunday session. So can you talk about the importance of Metalheads as a label and, and sort of what they did in the scene? Well, I think it's, it's worth remembering that when I wrote the book, Metalheads were probably at their peak. So. Um, you know, if I was to fully revise the book, I might might have a different perspective on them as a label now. But at that time, um, for an old person like me, they reminded me of 4AD in that um, 4AD, you had to collect the set. You know, you bought your Cocteau Twins records and you had the small coil records um, for the artwork and, and you had to have the set. Well, Metalheads had that same vibe about them, the same aesthetic. So every single track that came out, you had to have it. They, it all clicked, all the artwork fit together. It was it was all coming from the same space. It was kind of, I think, Metalheads was important in that it was laying down a lot of the ideas about branding, um, branding an idea, branding a concept that we take for granted now. And I think labels like Metalheads, Metalheads, where you start really first start seeing that alongside the super clubs of the era. Um, there were, I mean, there were a number of internal problems with with, with Metalheads. There's lots of arguments between its producers. Um, Goldie is a person who's um, can be hot headed, um, <laughs> to say the very least. Uh, so 
unsurprisingly, a number of people had arguments with him. Um, but really, I think the engine behind the label were chemistry and storm. Um, and also, I'd say, say Goldie's manager, and I've forgotten his name right now. Um, but they were the they were the, the engine behind Metalheads. They, they really were did shape the sound and the direction and the feel of the aesthetic of the label. The actual Sunday sessions were were amazing. Um, there was a sense I always talk about this music of all. It feels like you're walking into the future. Um, certainly, the, the, the clubs, the best clubs, always felt like this, and, and really, Metalheads epitomised what was best about the drum and bass and jungle clubs. Is that you walked in and the music you were hearing? Well, it was six months away from being released for starters, so everything was fresh. In fact, by the time things became released, were actually released, they felt old, which is kind of interesting in terms of accelerated culture. And you think about the the era this is emerging in. Um, there was interesting about Metalheads as well. Um, you had a really mixed audience. So, so yes, you had your junglists there, and you had your old old school um, drum and bass followers. But you also had a, a, a huge amount of, of Japanese people really incredibly, incredibly excited by this music. In fact, um, the first version of the book was licensed to Japan, the best version I've ever seen. It was so beautifully done. Uh, I went to a number of clubs in Japan. They, they, the drum and bass was just so big there. You saw in, in, in um, Metalheads, you also saw a lot of kind of um, cool, famous people. <laughs> Um, but they were just there. N- nobody cared. It's a bit like Brighton in England that nobody cares about famous people because you trip over them all the time. Well, that's what it was a bit like in Metalheads. You're there for the music. You're there for the energy. You're there for the for the, for the environment. You're not really there to see a famous person. I mean, David Bowie very famously went down there one night and nobody noticed him. Um, you, you're there to dance. You're not there to to, to look at people. So the great thing that I say in the book about about metalheads, about the Blue Note and the Sunday sessions at the Blue Note, is it felt like the future. The great thing for that area of London is it became a part of the gentrification of London and and the the, the warehouse spaces that were great free party spaces back then, you couldn't get for less than four million pounds a piece now. <laughs> it's a bit like Little Italy, you know, Soho in in New York, all the, all those areas that. Um, you know, where the post-punk scene came from, where, where Moby used to live, where you'd literally be tripping over drug addicts in the doorway, and now now you, you're tripping over A-list celebrities. <laughs> oh, that's how it works. Isn't it just, yeah. <laughs> you, like, part of this, too, you mentioned, oh, well, I was going to say you mentioned Moby, <laughs> which you did, but you mentioned Goldie. Right. And and some of this success of this move to the sort of mainstream and this explosion seems to come from Goldie. You talk about his studio album, uh, the this having a really solid studio album versus his the live performance. So can you talk a little bit about that ability to transition to this really solid studio album versus what uh, often is just you no know, what? a scene that's often really known for those live performances of those DJs. Sure. Well, 
I mean, the great thing I've already mentioned, I've already talked about the fact that uh, drum and bass is a, very much about the single. The jungle, jungle is very much about the single. The idea of of the dance floor is very much about the single. Um, you're not looking for long for the, for timelessness in a single. You're looking for the beat of the here and now. It's the zeitgeist of the heartbeat. And um, the 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 album is, wants to do a completely different thing. It's it's um, trying to be something that transcends the dance floor and remains with you forever. Really hard thing to do. And very few artists, even rock artists, actually, I think, achieve great albums. Now, I think Goldie, very much because of um, his producer, Rob Playford, on Timeless, created an exceptional drum and bass album. It's a bit too long. <laughs> I'll be honest now, I don't ever listen to the whole thing anymore. Um, but within that album, you hear there are so many flavours, so many styles. It's, it's, it draws on all those major influences and it puts it into a cohesive journey. Um, there are other artists that achieve this in drum and bass and jungle. Um, for Hero, certainly on on their album Two Pages, an incredible album, and also obviously Ronnie, Ronnie Size represents, which I still to this day think is the the finest album that came out of the the whole scene. Um, I know a lot of people disagree with me on that one, um, but these made that that difficult transition. Often when drum and bass artists or junglists um, try to create albums they got sucked into the billy cobham jazz funking you know we've got to show that we're true musicians here and and be deeply music musical and they, they kind of move so far away from the, the the musicianship of creating and shaping an electronic piece of music um that they kind of often lost the essence of what their sound was about they lost that dance floor energy um groove rider is a great example of that his his debut um full-length album wasn't wasn't very good at all it was just it was just like jazz rock times um and not done very very well um whereas his prototype years album that came out before it which was the best of his singles was immense because it's just a series of singles <laughs> um, so this is a really difficult trick. And and, and then Goldie tried to trans, transfer um, what was an incredible album into the live environment. And what did he do? He went the, gold, the groove route of, of employing lots of great musicians and turning it into a jazz odyssey. The musicians were great, but it was not the album. It was not what was great about Goldie and Rob Playford. Now, I, some of the guys that, he, that were involved with it, are incredible, incredible players. He had fantastic DJs, producers. Cleveland Watkins, the MC, amazing. But as a live project, it was awful. And you know, one of those things where you, you, you get so excited about seeing something, because you know it's live, it's going to be a different version, it's going to be, but you expect the essence to still be there. It was, it was terrible. It was awful. I'll go so far as to say as David Bowie did drum and bass better live than Goldie. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm going to get killed for saying that. <laughs> so I know people are going to be really upset with me saying that. <laughs> I'll quickly move from it. <laughs> what? Because sort of when you get to sort of the end. Um, 
jungle drum and bass sort of this scene really becomes international you talk about japan you talk about the sort of growth and explosion and this move so can can you just share where you saw this how this sort of continued right that it didn't end it it's a continuum um and sort of what you see happening now but what you sort of saw after that um the sort of first edition of this book and where this sort of headed? Okay, well, I mean, the first thing is, is to say that it never really went mainstream. It became mainstream media in that it was picked up and, and, and covered by um, the, the music press and the style press, but it didn't necessarily become a daily topic in, in the, uh, the broadsheets or the the, the early evening television programs. It wasn't mainstream in that way. And basically it didn't sell. On bottom line, it didn't sell in the same way, in the way that they, they expected it to, to do. You know, it's no cold play. But the impact it had globally, um, the influence it had globally was amazing. So if I look at the global scene, okay, so the, the, the music spread, there were clubs everywhere. I said, oh, I, I went to clubs in Japan. I went to clubs in New York. Um, in fact, just recently, I went in, in, back in October, I was at a club in, in Moscow. Um, and so it's, it really is a huge scene globally, a huge underground scene globally. But the, the, And I would say that anyway I go to in the world, I can find a place that's playing jungle, drum and bass. But the impact it had musically was phenomenal as well. So it does transfer back to Jamaica, for starters, for instance. So if you've got something that's influenced by by, um, by dance hall, well, influence goes two ways. This idea of there being a one-way culture. This idea, this, this cultural imperialistic idea that, that music in Britain or America are forcing music on the rest of the world and the, the influence doesn't come back. Well, there are many way flows of influence going on all the time and so you start seeing, for instance, in, in Jamaica, the Bashment scene. Bashment dancehall clearly influenced and inspired by drum and bass and jungle. You start seeing the influence on people like Timberland and his production. Listen to um, the early production of, of Khalees, Destiny's Child, that early, um, I don't really like to use the word urban, but it was, it was marketed as urban, that urban R&B scene. Um, a lot of those productions were very, very influenced by drum and bass. So you start seeing seeing this this different um, its tentacles touching on those different things. And I've already mentioned David Bowie, but the rock scene was influenced as well. So you start seeing young bands coming through who are very inspired by drum and bass. So you've got some, um, you know, rock bands who are fusing the sounds. Uh, so it kind of mainstreams in that way. It influences in, in a number of ways. The other interesting thing within the UK, of course, I've already mentioned the the, um, the the committee's influence on grime, but in terms of music, well, Jungle as this um, really this first claim of, of Black British music aesthetic. It could it came from Britain. It didn't come from anywhere else. We had a we had a hip hop scene that was inspired by America. But British hip hop didn't come from Britain. British reggae didn't come from Britain didn't come from Britain. This is the first music that was a British creation. So black British music. It then inspires the garage scene. 
Um, one of the interesting things that starts happening in drum and bass and jungle is drum and bass becomes very, um, not very sexy. <laughs> it's not very good to dance to, um, whereas jungle was. And there is, I talk about a race division, but I, th- I actually think that there was more of a, a gender division starts to emerge. There are far more women in jungle. And far more women um, going to the the uh, garage events, and a lot of the jungle DJs start DJing at garage events, and then you get the two step sound. So, you, so the interesting thing emerging, you've got two step garage. At the same time, you've got um, a form of drum and bass which is almost entirely. It's almost hard to listen to that. It's it's so much so machine music, but that's also a two step beat. So you've got the two diametrically opposed forms of music that are both using the same groove. Um, that then starts to influence, um, on the one hand, dubstep, and on the other, the other hand, what the emergence of grime. The great thing and really interesting thing for, for me is through all this process, you see the, um, the MC being in the background and slowly coming to the fore, comes to the fore through jungle, becomes much more, even more to the fore in garage and in grime is there at the front. So you see this transition from the back, back, back room producer, the bedroom producer and the, the, the MC playing second fiddle through to being, this is the MC's thing. So I, I think, I mean, I, I do believe that jungle is the most important cultural phenomenon in in British contemporary history. Um, it is for Black British music what punk was to um, I say white British music. It, it it was just pulling apart the rules, reconstructing things, deconstructing, reconstructing, and creating something that could only have emerged from. A particular space in a particular time. So we've been talking about this for a while um, and about your book. And so I usually uh, my sort of final question, what I usually ask is if there's something you're working on now or any projects that you have going on that you sort of want to plug. Wow. So <laughs> I'm now going to look up at my my, um, my ongoing board of, of work. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm currently writing a paper about grime, um, grime and, and the political environment that it emerged from. Um, I'm also writing a, a paper about the Russian fandom of the prodigy, uh, which is quite a, a unique fandom. Um, I've got a paper that I'm writing about uh, the the um, the loss of Islam from hip hop. Um, how is Islam was the unofficial religion of hip hop, and then almost it disappears and is replaced by consumerism. That's a very simplistic way of putting it, but uh, it's kind of ask, asking the question: Where is his, Islam in in, in hip hop now? Um, and I'm working on um, a book about the prodigy. <laughs> uh, I've self-published a. a, a, a a biography I'm doing part two at the moment. I'm also working on an academic book about um, music journalism, music criticism, um, and what it is now. 
So I'm doing loads. <laughs> I was going to say, you've got lots of projects going on. There's lots of time now, right? That's this summer. Actually, this has been an incredibly productive time, you know, it, it, without having to travel to and from work and and all those meetings where you have to sit and listen to people waffle on and suddenly they're 20-minute Zoom meetings. Suddenly I've got so much extra time and it, I've been very productive with it. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in, I shouldn't say I'm enjoying this time because actually I, I really want to go out to a club and <laughs> again... <laughs> Yes, I mean, and I don't, I, I'm, yes, and that probably is not going to happen anytime soon. I can't see it, no. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, so you can just keep writing about them and writing about the club. Yeah, I don't, hopefully my kids won't won't come to me and say, well, what was a club, Dad? <laughs> but, of course, all the venues are going bankrupt here now, so they're all closing down. Ah, mm. um, yeah, uh, yes, very... yes, we're seeing similar here in the U.S. and it'll just keep going, I think. Well, I think maybe people will start putting on um, illegal raves and gigs again. Mm. But they already are. They, that's already happening here. So Yes, yes. And there's talk about that. I'm in a university, you know, a small town, but uh, there was, it was just talk yesterday at a meeting I was at, what happens if the students start having these, like, large gatherings that right now are not legal in the state, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and how will the sort of university, even if it's off campus, deal with that kind of thing if it's more than 50 people at these large sort of gatherings and groups? So it'll be interesting to see. It's, it, it is interesting times and fr- from an ethnographic point of view, very interesting times. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, it's been really great talking with you about this. Again, this is Martin James, who wrote State of Bass, The Origins of Jungle, Drum and Bass. Um, And this is Rebecca Buchanan for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Martin, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Really enjoyed it.